Uh, also, get ready for me to at least once pronounce it as Usher. Why? Uh, you know, because like like the the uh, the R and B artist Usher often uh, referred to as Usher. I will I will be doing the same thing. I hate this. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, librarian and truly getting to be an amateur uh, uh, amateur contractor coordinator. Hmm. Uh, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. I'm Pete Romberg. Uh, luckily, just ra- hope, knock wood, wrapped with any sort of the house repair stuff for the next six months or so. Uh, Good put, luck. Put a and bow I mean on the last. <laughs> yes, put put a bow on on the project that we just wrapped. But you know, had that check cashed, and nothing. Hopefully, until next year. Fingers crossed. Knockwood. Yes, I am trying very desperately to give somebody money to do a ceiling repair, but the the process has gotten complicated, and I don't love it. Uh, We are here today to dig into the works of Edgar Allan Poe as a prelude to the latest Mike Flanagan escapade premiering on Netflix. um, Tomorrow. Tomorrow as we record this. As we record, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time this comes out... We'll all have already seen it. <laughs> um, his his newest one for Netflix, The Fall of the House of Usher. And his last. Uh, but before we... And his last one, because Netflix... Mm. Ooh, uh, Netflix, are they... get, your, get yourselves together. Are, are they good these days? We like them? Netflix? <laughs> I'm, uh, you oh, know... You're, yeah. Oh, you're pulling a funny. I'm doing you're a You're making a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we... We continue to support SAG after strike uh, and their their efforts. Um, yeah. Solidarity with the WGA sounds like they got a really good deal. I'm very excited for these streamers to have to report their uh, their streaming numbers and pay out residuals appropriately. There's a that story, was my favorite part. Yeah, there was a story recently in Hollywood. I think Hollywood Reporter about how like Marvel is. Uh, Marvel for Disney Plus is like retooling the way they're doing things and it's all framed like oh yeah we kind of just rediscovered that the television model is a good model but in the background unstated at any point during this article is the fact that the WGA contract required showrunners to be a thing on shows like this when previously Marvel had not had them so like this new Daredevil show is like gonna have a showrunner now and the Hollywood Reporter an absolute you know producer you know in in the bag for the producer's article is like extolling how Marvel has figured itself out and not talked about the fact that that is a win for the writers. Well, and the, the daredevil show is an interesting example because the original, um, showrunner creator, the guy who made it for Netflix, mm-hmm. um, is really is, is pissed about the soft reboot, because it is entirely a way for Disney to avoid having to pay the original creators of that show Amazing. anything. That's that's like how uh, Mean yes, Girls it's... on October 4th put out all all of Mean Girls over like 22 TikToks or something. And it's like, by doing that, they didn't have to give residuals to anyone. 
Well, and it's why the HBO rebrand to Max means that they don't have to pay residuals to anybody whose contract was made with the HBO network. Uh, that explains literally everything. Uh, uh-huh. Zaslev, someone who cares only this... about the bottom line and nothing else. Uh, 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 yeah, now, now I understand. The streamers are terrible. Um, but hopefully, hopefully things are moving in a better direction. I think they have at least now had a chance to see how deeply not uh, on their side the public is. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was 2008. It is not. Nope. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we're going to get into that. But first, we are going to talk to you about what is stuck on our heads this week where we go into the pop culture media artifact that has been on our mind since last we spoke. Uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head? Uh, I, I had a few things that could have gone on this list, but I have to be true to myself, and I'll just say, Martha, hi, I've got a tape I want to play. And then here I'm going to drop the opening to... Uh, uh, I'm going to hit play on a boombox and off stage, a little drum uh, kit is going to kick on and we're going to hear the first initial guitar strums of Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads because 40th anniversary, A24 did a 4K remaster and re-release of the 1984 concert film Stop Making Sense, directed by Jonathan Demi, written by Demi and the Talking Heads. Uh, this is your David Byrne in a big suit. This is your uh, dancing with a lamp. This is your running in place and getting the best cardio of your life during life during wartime. Uh, and I got to see it in a theater with Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads, a Milwaukee native, uh, doing a little Q&A afterwards. And it was like the most glorious 90 minutes of my life. Um, the concert film in and of itself is just pure joy distilled into 90 minutes and then seeing it in a theater with a bunch of people where for the first two the first song it's just David Byrne playing guitar with a boombox second song David Byrne Tina Weymouth come on they play one of my favorite talking head songs heaven third song you get Chris France wheeled on stage with drums and at that point a 70 year old man in a tucked in collared shirt and a cowboy hat went uh careening is the wrong word, but galloping down the aisles, whipping up those who wanted to dance during the movie out into the aisles, into the wings, and it became a slowly growing dance party in this beautiful old movie palace in uh, Milwaukee. Um, and so it was, you know, we were sitting for some of it, we were dancing for some of it, just having a great time uh, to arguably the best concert film of all time. Um... The truly astonishing thing about this movie is that somehow Jonathan Demme got Killian Murphy to play David Byrne, uh, which is weird because Killian Murphy would have been like, I don't know, 14 or something when this movie came out. So uh, invented time travel, got Killian Murphy involved. Uh, life is good. Um, I'm going to guess that you've never seen this, and I actually don't know your relationship to the Talking Heads, uh, but I do know that your sister gave it a five-star review. So, Yeah, I don't have one. I'm happy for you all. 
Um, I'm, I'm glad that you are all finding it a transformative experience. <laughs> uh, so so your take is the same as the take of uh, my wife, Marin, who I basically dragged here, uh, dragged, dragged to go see it with me um, because I had gone to a concert three nights prior by myself and was like, I'm not going to go to two basically concerts by myself in one week. So I bribed her with a, a nice dinner. She had a good time, but she was like, I, this is not for me. So I had fun, but I can't review this like as a movie because it's not a movie for me. Um, I'm sure that I would have a good time. It is just because I have no relationship to the talking heads and I don't super love concert movies. It's just been like, I am glad everyone else is finding that, their bliss here. That it was literally Marin's take. And she was like, being in a theater <laughs> with a bunch of people dancing was cool. I know three songs. <laughs> I was going to say, I am honestly not sure if that is an experience I would enjoy or not. I mean, probably. <laughs> I like to think I'm not that dead inside. <laughs> you, like, I, I do think that, like, the energy of the live, because it's like being at a concert, right? Like, and especially a concert where a lot of people know it very well. So, like, there are, I'd say about... Maybe by the end of the show, about half the house was still sitting down, but the other half of the house was like in the in the aisles, in the wings, and especially in the back, um, just having a great time. And there's something electric about being all together, listening to music, like listening to the same music and like dancing and and grooving to it. That to you know, it's like that and eating together are like the two most fundamental human things in the world. And there's something electric about being in that environment. Uh, but also, I understand that, like, well, I like I, this music, which helps. I don't know that I agree with you about that assertion about the fundamental nature of humanity. Um, but like I said, I'm really glad you didn't, you enjoyed it. I know that my sister loved it. I know that my mother loved it. Like, I'm truly, I'm not trying to be facetious yeah. here. Like, yeah. it sounds like for those for whom this is in their wheelhouse, it sounds like a pretty sublime experience. And I am deeply happy that you got to share in that cultural experience. Uh, I, I would say if you ever just want a nice little hit of, of like, what exactly is this like? Um, go ahead and, and just pull up a YouTube clip of, uh, uh, I think it's Burning Down the House and then Into Cities, which is like a one-two punch. It is... It... it the energy on screen is ecstatic and you watch it and you're like, these people have to have the best cardio of anyone outside like an ultra marathoner <laughs> because they are jogging in place while singing for five minutes straight. And it's like, what? How? How how are you doing that? <laughs> uh but what what is stuck in your head? Uh this is a this is a tricky one. So we are in October, mm -hmm. uh, which is a season where my entire life basically becomes the consumption of horror and horror-related media. Um, so I'm, you know, watching a horror movie a day. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts because I am going on vacation next week. Um, Ooh, first off, exciting. Second off, I'm really impressed with you for like I've I've been following your letterbox every day. You've got at least one new horror movie up there, which is crazy to me. Well, and the thing about that is because it's every day, I can't always, I, I can't, I cannot pick a movie every day that is like, good, uh, like, I wouldn't say good, but like, 
meaty or like mm-hmm. some of them have to be trash just because instead of a full palate cleanser, like not everything can be the changeling. <laughs> Sometimes you have to watch Hell House. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the movies that I did watch that I would describe as more horror adjacent, like it is definitely, um, I think definitely on the horror comedy side of things. And the first network that I saw it available on uh, was Shudder. So I, I'm counting it. Uh, is a movie called Dave Made a Maze from a couple years ago. Uh, it is a little indie movie about a guy who builds a cardboard maze in his apartment that starts to take on a life of its own. Bit of a house of uh, and situation? It is a bit. I okay. described it as the closest we're probably going to get to a House of Leaves adaptation mm. Mm. Um, because the maze starts to kind of develop a mind and life of its own. Mm-hmm. And his partner comes home from a work trip to find that he has made this maze and she's like you have to come out now this isn't funny anymore and he's like i can't i'm lost and she's like i'm coming in after you and he says no don't do it hope, uh, but then she, she has does, a ball of twine and, well and because it sounds ridiculous like the what you can see in the apartment is like a refrigerator box right so just looking at it you're like well dude just like so, come out of so the box. this is definitely a house of leaves <laughs> uh situation yes. yeah um, but yeah, so it chronicles the 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 rescue attempt of his partner and his friends to come into the maze and find him. Um, and it just like every all of the effects are made of cardboard. So part of it is sort of like, well, how threatening can this be? Um, but also people die. In the well, maze. And it's like, how threatening can this be? Day four. I can't eat cardboard. So. Right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, it's really fun. It's really inventive. Um, it's pretty poignant also because like Dave is an artist and his whole thing is like, he doesn't finish a lot of stuff cause he gets too stuck in his head about it. So then he's like, I just have to finish the maze. And his partner's like, are you crazy? We have to get you out of the maze. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so yeah, Ma- I maze highly as recommend a metaphor. it. Yes. Mm. Um, so yeah, so far that one I think would be my top recommendation of uh, the October Horrorathon so far. All right, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we're going to dive right into Edgar Allan Poe. And we are back. So Edgar Allan Poe, born in Boston in 1809, uh, dies in Baltimore. Well, also allegedly, allegedly <laughs> <laughs> dies in Baltimore at 1849. Also allegedly. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I will stop. <laughs> marries his cousin Virginia at age 13. Definitely not allegedly. Definitely actually. Not allegedly. (laughs) Unfortunately (laughs) true. Child of actors, uh, poet, novelist, writer, uh, and enduring cultural icon. Uh, Pete, so we have talked a little bit about Poe on this this podcast before. We did an episode 
on gothic horror about a hundred years ago that neither of us remembers recording. Um, but outside of our show, do you have a relationship with Edgar Allan Poe and the works thereof? Well, like every other American honors high school student, I read that fall of the house of the usher in my junior year, American lit English class. Uh, and I remembered nothing about it other than the house is a metaphor for a mind and it collapses at the end because there's a crack in it. And boy, was I shocked at the uh, spoilers. Um, entombing Alive, the second time uh, <laughs> that, that Poe has gone to that well, uh, at least. Uh, my preferred version of that is Cask of Amontillado, but uh, I was not prepared for it in Usher. Um, that being said... I'm a big fan of the Cask of Amontillado. I like the Mask of the Red Death. Uh, as a high school student, and actually younger, I, I think I was introduced to this maybe in middle school, um, The Pit and the Pendulum always captivated me because that just sounds horrifying. Uh, and that's kind of it. Like, I don't, you know, I've read The Telltale Heart before. I reread it for this. It's five pages. All of them, I'm shocked at how short they are, except for The Pit and the Pendulum, which is way too long. Um... But I, I don't have, like, an enduring relationship. I'm not, like, I don't have, like, a raven tattooed on me or anything. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not found traipsing around uh, graveyards. Um, but I, on the rare occasions where I do read his work, usually for this, I'm, I am captivated by it. Uh, it is capital R romantic. It is capital G gothic. And when you're in the mood for that... It's kind of top of the craft, you know? Well, and it's interesting because my relationship with him is mostly about my relationship with the people on whom he had an influence, mm -hmm. which is literally all people. <laughs> right. um, like love, Lovecraft, <laughs> top of that list. Yeah, um, but also people like Jules Verne, Arthur mm. Conan Doyle, um hg wells <laughs> yes like yeah. a lot of these a lot of these sort of pillars uh well i should I, say a lot of these male pillars of literature who were contemporaries of poe um like talk about well, that, talk very directly about the influence that he had on them that that's the thing when, um, when you were saying his his um when he, he was born and when he died none of those people actually were contemporaries because he died so young um we were talking off mic about how I'm, I'm reading Moby Dick slowly, making my way through it. And that came out after Poe died, I think. Um, or at least, like, pretty close to when he died. So, like, Doyle and, and Vern and, and Wells and all the rest of them, they were 20, 30 years after he died. Um, You're right. They, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at these dates, and you are exactly right. Um, but, like, but that's interesting, because, like, I, too, kind of think of them as contemporaneous, but really, he is is the one that's sending them all off on, on their adventures. Um, uh, a, a great example of that is Murder of the Rue Morgue. If you'd put a gun to my head, I'd been like, that's Conan Doyle, right? Like, it's a it's a murder mystery. It's an orangutan who does it. That's totally a, a Conan Doyle thing. Um, first of all, spoiler alert for a story that is 200 years old. For, um, first off, a spoiler alert for every single Edgar Allan Poe work in this podcast. You have been warned. Um, second of all, I have the a The heart is still beating here. under the floorboards. <laughs> I have a fun quote here from Arthur Conan Doyle about 
his work in the mystery realm. Uh, Conan Doyle says, each of Poe's detective stories is a root from which a whole literature has developed. Where was the detective story until Poe breathed the breath of life into it? Mm. Hmm. So, (laughs) but then you also have um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, resident killjoy out here. And and an actual Um, uh, contemporary of Poe, because he was he was kicking around in the 30s. Oh, I lost it. Where'd it go? Well, as you're as you're looking that up, um, I will say Telltale. Oh, Heart... here it is. Oh, uh, go ahead then. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson reacted to the Raven by saying, "I, I see nothing in it." <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> listen. If there's only room for one American poet, it's a cutthroat world out there, and you got to take down your rivals where you can. <laughs> uh, that that is an insane take. Um, Plutonian Shore. For that reason alone, it's an A plus uh poem. Um, I do just want to point out, and this is only a very short tangent, um, that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 1818. Uh huh. So is possibly one of the few Gothic writers that was writing independently. Of Poe's influence. Yeah, she was influenced more by her uh, insane husband and husband's lover. <laughs> um, and her husband's boyfriend, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just, I just, I, I, as a fully formed human adult, I'm, I, I now understand how little credit Mary Shelley gets for her work in the literary world. So I just wanted to, just wanted to get that in there. In, um, entirely but, fair. I, I haven't read Frankenstein in probably 20 years and i remember not enjoying it but that's just because i was probably like a 15 year old boy being like where's the monster you're in luck because guillermo del toro is making a new movie adaptation of it i did not know that Mm. is it gonna be a hot frankenstein hot monster oh um uh the short answer is yes oh excellent the long answer is the film will star Oscar Isaac, Andrew Garfield, Christoph Waltz, and Mia Goth. And they're all the monster, right? He's like cobbling no, them Andrew together. Garfield so it's like Garfield's left arm and, Oz- and Isaac's right arm. And <laughs> Oscar Isaac is the doctor. Andrew Garfield is the monster. Oh, whoa, whoa. I, I mean, this sounds incredible, so. Yes. Uh- <laughs> Um, and now that you have thoroughly forgotten what you were talking about. <laughs> well, no, I, I was going to say, um, uh, speaking of like authors independent of Poe, uh, Telltale Heart kind of gave me vibes of like, what if you condensed um, Crime and Punishment down to five pages? Uh, just because it's it's the, you know, let me reductively uh, describe crime and punishment, but like it's about a crazy person who kind of wants to kill someone and then deals with the, with the repercussions, right? Um, I've never read it. I have no idea. Well, you uh, could I mean, tell me it was about literally anything. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> crime and punishment, like Dostoevsky, right? So it's like five hundred pages, and it like is plumbing the human psyche about a person who uh, decides to commit a murder and does it in a very um, premeditated and methodical way. Uh, it, it's actually a very relevant book to today because, like, it's basically describing, like, 
a libertarian edgelord who's like, ah, but I am so smart that I could murder someone and get away with it. So what if I do? What if I plan the perfect murder and get away with it and then slowly go crazy because it's going to weigh in my consciousness? Um, and the, the well, opening and is, bit I mean, of Telltale right. Heart of like, oh, I hated his, his horrible vulture eye. So I plotted slowly, night by night, to murder this person. Uh and it was the perfect crime. And it's like, bro, it, it, it like, super wasn't. Like five, um, five minutes in, you're shouting at the police. I did it. So um, this actually is a very good segue for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so to prepare for this episode, we blithely recommended at the end of last episode for people to watch uh, the Vincent Price House of Usher, which we then realized that you can't find anywhere. <laughs> You, you, can, um, you can rent it for monies on the Apple TV, but more importantly, we've, we've realized that we couldn't find time, either of us, to actually do this, so uh, we didn't. Well, I don't, I don't have Apple TV, so oh, I Oh, sorry, Apple TV, um, um, iTunes, Amazon. You can, you can pay $4 to rent it on the internet, but you can't get it on streaming for free. Uh, it was not available on Amazon when I looked. This doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. The point is... I watched a movie called Extraordinary Tales, which is a 2013 animated anthology of five of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. Mm. It was produced by Guillermo del Toro, mm. my, to, my, my eternal movie crush. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a little ding sound every time we reference del Toro in this uh, episode, I think, and, and have a counter yes. going. Uh, listen, listen to this cast, this voice cast. Narrators for this anthology include Christopher Lee, Bella uh-huh. Lugosi, uh-huh. Julian Sands, Del Toro himself, Great. Roger Corman, Stephen Hughes. Yes. <laughs> um, the tales included here are uh, Telltale Heart. Um, Fall of the House of Usher, which is the opening opening segment. That's a long one to do. Well, my big complaint about this anthology is that because it is a, like, 90-minute movie, Uh, they abbreviate the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We also have The Pit and the Pendulum, The Mask of the Red Death, which closes the anthology, and I would say is the weakest one Story-wise, it is very strong stylistically, but they present it to you almost without, or completely without narration. And I think it loses a lot of its power because Poe's power is largely in his words. Hmm, but um, but I, it I also see... included my favorite... I Keep going. I, I, I can see that one being the one that we strip the words out of because it's such about the visuals. Like, each room is a different color. And I can absolutely see Del Toro being like, we can we can tell the story without words by by leaning on, like, the, the colors and, like, the styles and having each room be different. And then at the end, we take our masks off and it's Skellingtons or whatever. Uh, yeah, and maybe it's because that, that one in particular has a pretty poignant edge to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, that I missed. I, I did not feel that it was as incisive as I wanted it to be. That's fair. Uh, 2013 is a different time than 2023. When, when we're talking about playing um, stories. <laughs> yes. Well, and the whole, like... Rich people the rich blowing themselves away. Yes. care less about <laughs> poor people. They're, they're um, gold, uh, and then the gold last mesh one... masks. 
Yes. <laughs> I love you, Kate Hudson. <laughs> um, uh, but the last segment was a story that I was not familiar with called The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. Hmm. Do you know? Are you familiar with the story? Uh, no. And I, when you were uh, starting to list that, I thought it was going to be... Um... Uh, I feel like this guy's name is is Hank Pym, but clearly that's a Marvel character. Uh, it's it's the guy that um, uh, Mark Hamill is I mean, named after in the upcoming uh, show. Um, yeah, it, it Pym. Pym is correct. Oh, it is Pym. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, so the facts in the case of M. Valdemar is about a mesmerist who becomes very fascinated with the way that mesmerism can assist in the medical field. And he has a friend who is dying of tuberculosis, and he convinces his friend to let him, at the moment of his death, perform a mesmerism on him, which basically sends his friend into a state of suspended animation for like eight months. Like, he is. Alive and not neither, alive. Neither living nor dead. Yes, until at the very end, he's like, please let me die. I am, this is, so like he's I am a, suffering. He, he's like a zombie. Sort of. Huh. But the, and then the animation style for that one was very like pulp comics-y. It was very cool. Mm, mm. Um. But yeah, so they're they're condensing these stories down into these like eight to twelve minute shorts. Um, and Fall of the House of Usher, I felt lost. It it moves so rapidly that you kind of lose the like gradual descent into madness because it's like everything is super weird right off the bat. Yeah, like and, and Usher <laughs> Usher is all about like the vibes and the mood and like the like the mood is off the vibes are off to begin with. But then they just get worse and worse. Uh, and you have to sort of like sit in that. That is for a the while. one that Christopher Lee. That mm. is the one that Christopher Lee narrates. And he does a lot of work there. It's, I, yeah, it's, very good. Yeah, I would believe that. <laughs> um, I was a little surprised they did not choose to do The Raven, but the interstitial between the stories is um, like the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe as a raven in a graveyard talking to a statue that is like the embodiment of death. So maybe they felt that that was enough. Uh, also, as as we said off air, uh, the Simpsons in a Treehouse of Horror did a, I believe it's a word for word recitation of the Raven, uh, with Homer as the narrator and Bart as the Raven, um, uh, and Marge as Lenore. Uh, so you know you can go see that on YouTube or Disney Plus or wherever else, uh, and that's like the same thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but also, I guarantee that is a large swath of uh, America's exposure to uh, the Raven. Oh, for sure. Um, although I do feel like the Raven is sort of like, like, his mo- like that's the one that people quote the most. I, I like, think quote, quote the Raven nevermore is definitely one of those things that is just like a thrown off as a line. Even if you don't know what it's from, you kind of got the vibe, you know. Like people um, who've people who've never read the poem might say that. Yeah, they at least like even if they've never read the poem, you know immediately what it's from. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so like, th- why? I guess the the short 
answer or the short question is kind of is always why why do we see this guy produce such an indelible thumbprint on pop culture like after his death but not super long after his death um like short enough after his death that if he had lived like to, if to he had not died instead young, of 40 <laughs> like he would have seen yeah if he had not yeah. died young he would have seen it yeah um and the fact that it is still like you like you said it sort of facetiously i think but people do get his works like tattooed on their bodies um i i don't think it is hyperbole to say that he uh is in a sort of similar vein to shakespeare in just the reach of the arm of his work um so i i, I do have a couple thoughts on this um but one of them, uh, th this is actually not a thought of mine, but I want to throw it uh, into your direction. Um, Brilliant. This, uh, so I took a screenshot of this tweet that I was just going to send to you, but then I thought it'd be more fun to read it to you on air. Um, this this tweet is from September 28th by a uh, a handle called Dr. Frizzle uh, at, uh, at Swilua, S-W-I-L-U-A, want to credit this properly. Um and it reads, yes, I, I, this person seems like it's a, a, a college uh, professor. Um, so yesterday during a discussion of the Telltale Heart, one of my students pointed out that there were no gendered pronouns for the protagonist. And what if it were female? And they all started talking about how much it changed the story and it was fascinating. And then the thread sort of continues. Um, but I... I reread the Telltale Heart after reading that tweet. So in the back of my mind, I was thinking, it's like, yes, obviously I assume that this person is male, A, because I'm a male and I read all, you know, first off, every work of fiction is for and about me. Um, so I read, read everything as a guy, but also it's posed, so you assume it's a guy. But there are no gender pronouns, and it is very different if it's a woman who's like, this dude and his horrible, like, vulture eye is, like, looking at me weird, and so I killed him. Um... That does that does take the the description of vulture out of the literal and more into yeah watching my my landlord with his wandering hands uh yeah that's fascinating that's see and that's the kind of thing where I would be desperately interested to know what Poe had like what his intention was because that it's like um. If that were to, if that story were to be published today, it would feel, it would almost assuredly be intentional. Yeah. Like, John Scalzi has a book out called Lock In, mm -hmm. where, which is a first person uh, point of view, and the protagonist is not gendered, ever. Oh, interesting. Um, so so my, my problem is I, I consume all Scalzi via audiobooks, which are almost inherently narrated by um, Will Wheaton. So I don't get that. Fun there are two life. audio versions of this book. Oh, oh. There are two audio versions. Yeah. Oh, I only I only listened to the Wheaton one because I'm like Scalzi Wheaton match made in heaven. Great. Um, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it was also recorded with a female uh, female reader. That's cool. Um, but like, was Poe thinking about that when he wrote it? Like, did he do that intentionally? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, probably um, not, but also... 
there's no way to know, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like in the absence of evidence that you, you could totally, but, but like, like, I think I, you could totally make that reading. I, I, I haven't done the flip side though of this. And it's like, um, the cask of Amatiato. I don't know if the protagonist ever has a pronoun given. Well, I guess Mon- Montresor is like a male name, so never mind. Uh, Yeah, like I just I don't I don't think that he ever wrote from a female perspective. So I'm sort of hesitant to be like he did it on purpose, but right. also just that yeah, that's fascinating. Well and, and also I will say further down this thread, someone had the comment of like, yeah, it turns out that when like students are brought up to pay attention to pronouns, they have like wild and interesting new takes on literature that previous generations didn't have. It's like, mm hmm, yep. Um, but yeah, the, the kind of the short answer is that I mean, the easy answer, I think, is that he is writing themes that are still very reverberant through till today. Like, there is a lot of class based critique in his work. Um, I think that that is probably based on what we have seen from the fall of the House of Usher trailers. I think that will be a definite focus of Flanagan's. <laughs> um, and yeah, like he, a, a pretty fundamental root of like um, Gothic and romantic literature is these sort of big human feelings that we have always felt and will continue to feel. So like guilt all-consuming, uh, like, obsession, um, jealousy, greediness. Like, he's he's trafficking in these very big, very deeply human emotions. Um, and dude just had a way with words. I think that was part of why I was disappointed um, at the truncation of so many of the animated it's just like I could listen to his words just right. like, pretty I, much forever. <laughs> I want Christopher Lee to read me uh, my six hundred page essential tales and poems of Edgar Allan Poe. Just have that man read me Poe. Great. Um, I think also what helps though is that he's doing all this and like he is he is hitting quintessential human themes and particularly dark human themes. And he's doing it in five pages, right? Like, all uh, you know, it, it, especially thinking of, of Poe as someone who, like, many people read in high school. Yeah, people also read, uh, like, The Scarlet Letter in high school, and oh my god, I did not care for The Scarlet Letter for many reasons. And one of the—I'm I'm picking on Scarlet Letter specifically because uh, Hawthorne was roughly a contemporary of Poe. Um, but, like, The Scarlet Letter is— you know what, 300 pages or whatever, and if you're not on board with Puritans, you're in for 300 pages of Puritans. Um, and, like, transcendentalism. Poe, if you don't like gothic, like, romanticism, after 10 pages, the story's done. And you can be like, alright, whatever. And for the kids who like it, it's like, also, cool, now I can like, mainline you... it. Also, if you don't like gothic literature, shut up. Yes, you do. <laughs> I mean, like, like there is that, but like, sure, I, I can, I can, I can get the kid who's like, I don't like the purple prose. I just don't like capital R romantics. Uh, 
give me subtlety. Don't put it all on your sleeve. Don't like talk about how you're hanging out with a with your buddy who you haven't seen in 20 years listening to him play guitar. Uh, here's Wonderwall for the eighth time. Cool, man. Are you depressed anymore? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, that sounds annoying. Uh, like, I, I get it. Until finally his sister's like, you buried me alive. Um, Which just... Uh, like, man. incredible. I, I, I fully <laughs> forgot that that's how this... That, that's how the story went. So when that happened, I was like, I'm sorry, What? <laughs> uh-huh. um, oh speaking of i promised you this off air so yes. um so so as i as i was explaining off air uh the book of poe i have is the essential tales and poems of edgar Allan poe a barnes and nobles classic edited by benjamin f fisher this has a, a mixture of endnotes and footnotes can't really tell the difference why he picked one over the other and uh, definitely has the vibe that the footnotes are for the college students who don't know that disordered can mean, like, a little bit crazy and not just it messy. Um, but he has a footnote about... Uh, I have now, of course, lost it. No, he has an end note about uh, Fall of the House of Usher, where he is uh, noting the... Um, uh, the various books that they all read that 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 are in Usher's library, including uh, the Vigiliae uh, Mortorum Secundum Corum Ecclesiasticae Magnitude. Um, nope. Let's try this again. You took Latin. Explain it. I did. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, it's a um. A quote the footnote. Uh, the Vigiliae was used as a mass for the dead at the second church in church in Mainz, Germany, and was also invoked to keep vampires at bay. As such, it may be it may gloss the role of Madeline Usher, who could be a vampire. <laughs> used by Poe to I love it. Incredible. <laughs> used by Poe, to be sure, for symbolic purpose in the tale. Thus, Roderick may not wish to place her in the remote family graveyard because he may fear what the doctors may find should he exhume her body and be to be used for medical purposes. Uh, I, what? <laughs> I, I read this end note um, and I'm like, how did we get to vampires? This is kind of amazing, but also fully insane. <laughs> 10 out of 10, no notes. Um, I can only hope that this is the path that Flanagan chooses to take us down. Based on the footnotes of the Barnes and Noble edition. He's already done his vampire story, so maybe not. Um, um, So... Poe's works have been adapted into movies anywhere from 17 to more than 30 times. According to your Google search, at least 17 times. At least 17 times. Um, are there any that are sort of particular favorites of yours? Um, I will be honest. Yeah, like, like are I, there... So, I like, obviously all the Vincent Price ones are classics, and I could not tell you if I've seen a single one of them. Um... Asterix, it's entirely likely that I saw Usher and maybe Pit of the Pendulum like 25 years ago or something. Um, but I don't know if I've seen, other than the the already mentioned uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Terror episode, uh, I don't know if I've seen a single Poe adaptation. Um, 
How about for you? Other other than oh. the Del Toro, uh, which at least you saw. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> um, it's it's tough adapting Poe as a movie, uh, because it's all short stories, right? So, uh, if first off, if you're doing like your Vincent Price, Roger Corman type thing, yeah, that's an awesome adaptation because you can do it in eighty four minutes. And, you know, on, on, a, on a good proper budget, you got some cool gothic sets. Yeah, Vincent Price monologuing for a while. You're in and you're out. You're done. Um, but, like, a modern-day adaptation would be almost impossible as a movie because there's no way you're getting that to 90, much less, you know, three hours. Uh, and so something like a serialized story like the Del Toro or a loose adaptation we're jumping off from, like Flanagan's, uh, kind of makes a lot more sense. Like a um, uh, a compendium piece rather than a like you know we're doing two hours on the mask of the red death yeah and i'm I'm looking at some lists of like best poe adaptations and most of them were made before 1960 mm-hmm. um which is mostly interesting because i i don't watch a lot of old movies i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um I did, Netflix did put out um, a movie last year called The Bluest Eye, which is not a Poe adaptation per se, mm-hmm. but Poe is a character in it. Um, and that was kind of interesting. Uh, Poe is, um, this is very annoying. Poe is also a character in... Mm, I want to say Altered Carbon, a a sci-fi show that Netflix made, um, because he is the the hotel AI creates an avatar of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, was that Altered Carbon or was that something else? Um, Unknown, although now I feel like it has to be true that there's an Edgar Allan Poe preserved head it, in Futurama. Uh, ooh, almost certainly. Uh, it was, in fact, Altered yeah. Carbon season one. It is the Raven Hotel. Uh, and so the AI uh, makes itself appear as Edgar Allan Poe, and he is played by a guy named Chris Connor, who does a pretty good job. Well, and let us never forget um, when Edgar Allan Poe was played by John Cusack in a. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, very, very bad 2012 murder mystery movie. It's not I, good. I, I had no idea. Uh, I, I'm sure I won't watch this, but this is fascinating. Yeah, it's about someone starts killing people in ways that resemble Edgar Allan Poe's stories. So mm. he gets called in as a consultant oh, uh, by sure. Detective Luke Evans. Sure, why not? I, I do think it helps that Poe is a very distinctive-looking dude. Like, he, he's an easy caricature, you know? And, and and going off, you're like, I'm sure there's a Futurama head. It's like, yeah, because if you, if you were to do a very quick Simpsons Futurama-style head, you'd be like, oh, that's Poe. Well, and Kate Beaton also did some very funny... <laughs> um, yes. ...Poe-based comics. Uh, who's the other character... Oh, between him and Jules Verne. <laughs> <laughs> yes, up in the hot air balloon. 
Yes. <laughs> but and, and again, that, that comic works so well because like it smells like French perfume. <laughs> like, but that, that that comic works so well because like the very first panel, you're like, well, that's Poe. I guess I don't really know what Jules Verne looks like, but he's in a hot air balloon, so now I understand. But like, you immediately are yes, like, that, like this this quick drawn sketch is obviously Edgar Allan Poe. The massive bags under his eyes uh, help help me understand this. He he looks like his genre, and I don't know terribly many other authors. I I think Terry Pratchett is the other author who looks like perfectly like his genre. You know. Lovecraft, I think. Mm, yeah, no, Lovecraft looks about as waspy as possible, so yes. Yes. Sallow, <laughs> sallow, gaunt, thin-boned, idiot-filled, idiot-brained skull, waspy, uh, scared of shadows, a phrenologist's dream. <laughs> <laughs> he would be so lucky. <laughs> Uh, you can cut this out or not, but I'm putting my foot down. I don't want to do a Lovecraft episode. Uh, uh, that's fair until Del Toro makes In the Mountains of Madness. We can, no, only, when, we can only be so lucky. If that happens, we will double feature In the Mouth of Madness... Which we've already and covered, but madness. I will happily go back to it. We absolutely have not. Yes, we absolutely <laughs> did. We talked about it on this very show. What was the context? Uh, cool movies starring Sam Neill. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Sam Neill? <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> we, we absolutely covered it. We talked about it. And I partly am aware of this because uh, my brother just logged this on Letterboxd. And I was thinking, oh, cool. Last time I saw that was, uh, you know, when we covered it on a show. I'm going on my letterbox now to see if I've tagged it with a DYDYH tag. Uh, this is great audio content. Um, <laughs> did we do a Carpenter episode? I'm calling no, SoundCloud. Um, I logged it and I tagged it. Hmm, I did not tag it with a DYDYH tag. I'm telling you, we did not watch that for the show. Maybe we just talked about it because no... I I might have mentioned watching it and you were like, I love that movie. It's the best. It's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> huh, okay. Well, first off, twist my arm to do a double bill of the non-existent Del Toro in the Mountains of Madness, <laughs> We Can Only Be So Lucky movie, and the 1994 uh, John Carpenter in the Mouth of Madness movie. Yeah, let's just put a pin on that one. Yeah. Should it ever happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that um, makes sense. So watching... Oh, sorry? I was going to say, In the Mouth of Madness, not really Poe-oriented, much more Lovecraft-oriented. And we were saying earlier, yes. Lovecraft influenced by Poe, but took it in a much more, uh, let's call it, racist direction. I mean, I don't... Poe is no yeah. icon of virtue right. in that area in in a way that no white middle-class man in the 19th century was. I, I was going to say, uh, what, what year did he die? Okay, great. Yeah. 
So, based on the trailers for Fall of the House of Usher, which does come out tomorrow, so soon all of our questions will be answered. Um, I think, apart from the title story, I think it is safe to say that other things that we will see echoes of, because the Flanagan shows have been sort of centered around one piece of literature, but ultimately a pastiche of an author. So, um, you know, you had Haunting of Hill House, which was a lot of homages to Shirley Jackson, uh, author of the title story. And then Haunting of Bly Manor is the turn of the screw and the author whose name I can't remember. Henry James. Um, yeah. Had a, had, and he was an author that I am less familiar with than I am with Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of have to take it on faith. Like I know the turn of the screw, but outside of that. So I think we can be safe to say that we're going to see a lot of Poe references outside of just the titular story in Usher. Um, what would you like to see in this show? I think it's going to be pretty gnarly. So I have read reviews that have given me the general structure of the show. So I don't know how much I should... If you have not read these reviews, and these are all like... I don't know, it's like reviews of the entire series, not like episode one reviews, so they're more like... Here's the structure of the show writ large. Um, and if you have okay, not read well, those, without and spoiling, don't... yeah, don't spoil anything. Okay. Um, but I think you can still. I mean, I think my question still stands. Like, what would you? What are you interested in seeing, or what do you want from this show? Hmm. I mean, for That's... example, yeah, uh... I I would love to see. Um, the actor who plays Roderick, uh, uh, Bruce Green or uh, Green, um, Bruce Greenwood, or not, not? Yeah, Bruce Greenwood plays Roderick. Um, I would love to see Carla Gugino, uh, brick Henry Thomas up in a wall. I think that would be very fun. <laughs> <laughs> did did you uh did you end up reading the cast of Amatiato? I've read it before. Okay, okay, um. Dear God, Montresor. Yes. Oh, 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 over the summer, I was building a little uh, garden retaining wall, and I got a picture of Ozzy uh, between two of the bricks as I was building them, and I was able to to post an Instagram picture of Ozzy between the bricks with a caption of "For the love of God, Montresor." <laughs> and I believe God, Montresor. I believe one person got it, <laughs> uh, which is just you know. A, a, a searing indictment of the school system these days. <laughs> Listen, sometimes your jokes are just for you, and that's right, okay. exactly. It, like I spent five minutes getting him posed perfectly for this a uh, cask of amontillado related Instagram post, and turns out that's not what the kids are into these days. <laughs> but yes, so based uh, on uh, based on the marketing for House of Usher that I have seen, and I have not read any reviews because. I already know that I'm going to watch it. Yeah. I don't want to know more about it. Um, Carla Gugino seems to be somebody who is getting revenge on Roderick Usher for something by killing his children in very gnarly ways. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot to play with here. Um, 
I feel like the pit and the pendulum is sort I, of a, a shoe in. I was as going. A, uh, I was going uh, to say. Uh, I. It's possible that my very first Poe exposure when I was in maybe fifth or sixth grade was like my dad doing like a half baked job of like recounting the pit and the pendulum to me as an idea, and me just being like, "I'm sorry, what? That's the most terrifying thing anyone has ever, ever conjured." Um, so that one loom looms large for me to the point where every time I read the story, I'm almost a little let down because it's not as, like, it's, it's kind of too long. Um, but that's mostly because I've built it up in my own brain as such a horrifying thing that I don't know if anything could ever do justice to what I myself have, have conjured, uh, for it. Well, it does sort of end very abruptly. Like, oh, you're saved now. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like the saving aside, like, I, I, I kind of think that it's, it's one of the few where I'm like, I would go fewer pages, not more pages on this one. Um, so, yeah, I, I would love uh, that. Um, I do know that there is going to be a Mask of the Red Death episode, and if that captures an eighth of the lighting and color cues in the story, I will be happy. Um... Oh, I want yeah. I want that thing stunning. I want that thing to be shot by Roger Deakins, uh, and I want him to be dialing it up to eleven. Uh, or, yeah, Flanagan does seem to be going hard on the rich people are awful so angle. So yes, I I feel like um, Mask of the Red Death is also a pretty assured uh, reference that we'll see. Um, somewhat somewhat related to this conversation, are you aware of the podcast Too Scared Didn't Watch? Oh, Peter. Okay. I've yes. Ju- I've yes, just, I am. I've just discovered this. Uh, and the first, They're fun. They are fun. The first episode I listened to was a Gerard... I can never say this. Uh, Gerald's Game? Oh, yes. Uh, That's by, an intense place to start. By, well, it was on the more, the more recent ones. By Flanagan, uh, starring Carla Gugina. And I, I decided to listen to that one purely because I wanted to hear their reaction to that particular... Like, to the degloving scene. Uh huh. And it did not disappoint. Um. So I have not watched Gerald's Game because there are some things that Same. I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Um. So listening to the Too Scary Didn't Watch episode was the first time that I understood that the degloving was accidental. No, it's on. Per- I well... have been. What is on purpose is her covering her hand in blood to try and get it slippery enough. And the way that it is described in that episode is that it catches on the handcuff as she is. I have been laboring under the assumption that she was just like, well, the only way to get out of this is to skin my own hand. Right. No, because like, because like the cut, the (laughs) cutting is on purpose and that's horrific enough. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I haven't watched it. I love their podcast. Um, I have a couple other recommendations for you if you dig their vibe. Um, oh, I, I, yeah. I also just recently yes, watched I... the, um, the Eraserhead one, uh, and that was amazing. Uh, because trying to describe Eraserhead is a, a feat uh, that they succeeded <laughs> at. And a half. <laughs> like, they, they, succeed, they succeeded at describing a dream. <laughs> like yes. a, an anxiety nightmare. 
But yeah, the episodes that I listen to on their show are either movies that I've already seen or movies that I don't plan to see. Sure. And then I save the ones the the movies that I'm going to see and then I listen to them afterwards mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. I can relive the experience of watching them. <laughs> Um, so we are planning to record a little addendum for you all after we've actually had a chance to absorb, uh, absorb the fall of the House of Usher. So be on the lookout for that. Um, but otherwise, Pete, do you have any other closing thoughts on Edgar Allan Poe? Um, like I kind of said at the top, he's an author that I don't turn to unless it's assigned. But then when I start reading him, I'm like, this is fun and I'm enjoying it. Um, I think the, sh- the short story nature of it helps tremendously because uh, it feels very productive to spend like an hour reading and finish three stories, you know. Um, especially when it's taken me over three months to read the book I'm currently reading. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, like, he just has a delightful way with words. And... It it really fires. Uh, I, I feel like every time I, I pull something else new out of him, which is always a mark of a, a fascinating and, and excellent author. Um, so look at, looking forward to the Flanagan show. Realistically, I probably wouldn't watch it if you weren't so gung ho on it. And that's not any shade. It's just a statement of like, it would probably pass me by. Uh, Marin has no interest in watching it, so then it'd be on my own to see it, and I'm just bad at that kind of thing. Um, so I'm glad that it is a uh, a homework assignment because it is a show that I'm looking forward to. Because um, I like Flanagan. Have like you Poe. have you watched? Yeah, have you watched his other shows? Uh, uh, we watched um, Haunting of Hill House for this podcast. We watched. Uh, I I was able to talk Marin into watching Bly Manor. That was one that that she enjoyed and then tolerated uh when it got too ghosty uh but was able to power through and then i i only watched about half of midnight mass uh and stopped not because it was bad just because you know i got busy and i never got back to it and then it was far enough out that i didn't want to restart it um so i'm i'm gonna hope that uh the same thing doesn't happen to me for this one um i highly encourage you to go back to midnight mass it is absolutely my favorite of his works up and, to this point. And you didn't um, even grow up Catholic. No. <laughs> um, I, I, still spend, I still spend the entirety of the final episode weeping. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm just very in the pocket for whatever Flanagan does. I He has not made anything yet that I have not enjoyed. You know, um, I, uh, almost certainly before I, I rewatch Midnight Mass, because that's like eight hours of a commitment, um, I do really want to watch Dr. Sleep, uh, which I've never gotten around to watching. Uh, and I've heard kind of, I feel like it's getting a critical reappraisal in a way, or at least like anyone talking about it now is like, oh, you know, it's actually pretty good. Uh, so I have always enjoyed it. And I... I am a Stephen King early. I like this movie more than I liked the book. Mm, I, I haven't read the book, so. I I would say just watch the movie. And if, like, if you watch the movie and you're like, yes, this is my jam. I love everything about it. Steam. Then I would, you know, say maybe visit the, visit the movie. But um, 
I think Flanagan does a really interesting job of threading the needle between The Shining, the book, and The Shining, the Kubrick movie, and also um, the Doctor Sleep movie, or book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, and, I recommend it. And like highly. McGregor and Ferguson, I'm going to have a good time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jacob Tremblay shows up for a while and it's Ooh. very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, any, any yeah, closing for, thoughts? For my... uh, no, I think that about covers it. Um, I'm... Yeah, <laughs> it will be interesting to see. Um, I, also, I also sometimes feel like whenever somebody makes something that is sort of the, like, definitive version of a thing i'll be interested to see if um flanagan's show has any effect on future poe-based projects Mm. Mm. or if we sort of get a break from them for a bit because it's like well he just did that so like i like i don't think it'll be forever i don't think we will be done with poe based on other flanagan things and, and what i've read he's much more of a um uh not so much a raven but as a more of a magpie uh in the sense of like this is not the definitive fall of the House of Usher because it's sort of like a, a Poe writ large cobbled together and reflected, refracted through some new lenses, but it's not the definitive any version, any Poe, you know, just because it's like, I don't know, it's fine again doing his own thing. Um, so I, I too would be interested to see if this sparks people making more Poe stuff or if they're like, all right, well, that was fine. We'll, we'll spend 15 years not doing it. <laughs> Um, do you, do you have a favorite Poe? I guess this is a good, this is a good last question before we wrap up. Uh, if you can only pick one, what's, what's your go-to? Well, now I want to read the, the M. Valdemar story because that seems very weird and kind of up my alley. Yeah, mesmerism. Um, I think my, I think my Poe is probably, I don't know, man. (laughs) I... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I have one. <laughs> uh, he's never. Like I said at the top of the episode, like he has never been my author. Like my my author is much more the people who, like, are pulling from him rather yeah. than him himself. Yeah, yeah. Like totally. I acknowledge that the stuff that I really like wouldn't exist without him. Um, but in terms of his work, I have never felt any sort of particular affinity for him Mm -hmm. and i think to pretend otherwise would be disingenuous that said i do love yelling for the love of god i i I was gonna say uh, amatiato (laughs) is maybe my favorite just for virtue of that and also uh it messed up uh, um, I also really love the Thomas the Tank Engine meme. <laughs> With what, Diesel being uh, bricked up? <laughs> being bricked up? <laughs> the, the best part is, I don't know this meme, but I know, the, I know the screen grab of Diesel being bricked up, and so as soon as you said the Thomas the Tank Engine meme, I'm like, yes, yes, I can picture this. I don't know if I've seen it, but I know exactly what this looks like, and I love it. <laughs> 
I'm sending it to you right now. <laughs> it's going to be my profile picture on every social media now. <laughs> Incredible. It won't be because text doesn't work well in a profile picture. But anyway, take us out. Um, so that is going to do it for us today. Uh, if you are enjoying the show and need uh, more content from us truly, you should first you should listen to our sister show that I record on all days from this one. It's called Love Ya, and I record it with Pete's wife, Marin, where we talk about adult rom-coms or teen cinema. Uh, we just put out an episode on the new Amazon Prime original Red, White, and Royal Blue, and our next episode is on the Netflix streamer Love Again. Um, you can also follow us on all the socials at DYDYH Podcast. You can follow me on all the socials at Magical Martha, uh, including uh, Instagram, Blue Sky. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not really on Twitter. Just poke my nose in on the browser version every once in a while just to see what's going on, but I'm not really there anymore. Uh, I write a newsletter that you can find at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha, where I have been going through... Uh, all of the Disney 2D animated canon recently, although that is on pause right now as I watch my my horror movies every day in December. Trying to er, not December, October. <laughs> that that December would be a fun, that would be a fun <laughs> tiny letter. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, running two film projects at once is a little <laughs> much. So I just I just published the um, 1970s. Uh, which is up through The Rescuers. Um, and the next issue is going to be a doozy because it runs from Ooh. The Fox and the Hound through The Mermaid. Uh, fun fact about The Fox and the Hound, that cast is insane. Because uh, it's... Um... Uh, it is also... Um, Fox and the Hound is also the last movie that Don Bluth worked on for Disney Animation Studios. Before oh, breaking off to go do Don Bluth studio stuff. Interesting, because uh, Fox and the Hound it stars Kurt Russell, Mickey Rooney, and Corey Feldman, among others. Um, Pete, do you have anything to plug? Oh, you can follow me on Letterboxd and Blue Sky at P. Romberg. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, although I, too, am slowly uh, Homer-style backing into the bush over there on Twitter. Uh, much like you, I, I pop my head over there, but I'm trying not to engage anymore uh, as part of my slow and gradual slouching into deleting that account. Uh, but technically still there um and i i think that's it uh blue sky and letterboxd p romberg r-h-o-m-b-e-r-g yep find us both on letterboxd it's the best social media it really is uh so apart from our little bonus episode uh our um the next time you listen to a full-size episode from us we are going to be taking a critical look at the works of Wes Anderson as I sort of personally reevaluate my relationship to this very quintessential Americana director and creator. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's going to be fun. So so the homeworks for that uh, are going to be a... Make sure you have a general awareness of Wes Anderson and his works. But I, I feel like we're going to particularly be looking at... Um, uh, Martha, you want to talk about Darjeeling Limited. We should... And then we're sort of looking at his newest stuff, French Dispatch, and then things he made this year, uh, which is Asteroid City. And then uh, Netflix has done a terrible job promoting this, but he has four short movies based on Roald Dahl uh, on Netflix. So go watch those. Um, it's The Rat Catcher, The Swan, The Poisoner, and uh, the something about Henry Sugar? The the, wonder, the Marvelous Tale of Henry Sugar. There we go. Um, or The Wonderful Tale of Henry Sugar? Some of those words will One of get those. you there. Yeah. Uh, so, so go watch those. Um, great job, Netflix, for giving him money to do those. Bad job, Netflix, for not promoting them in any way. How is that different from any of other Netflix's? Any of other? No, any other of Netflix's stuff. We're still talking about The Gray Man, a movie that everyone in the world saw five times. It's that's <laughs> in the parlance of Blake Jack. That's not a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's going to do it for us today. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Best dismissed. Huzzah! And you we got, got the, there. You got I the think. outro. Ha, 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 ha.